Good morning, everyone. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mould, and cast an image of a calf, and they, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, who you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been being quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation." But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. The people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So our reading for this morning begins and this raises a question for us as it did for the Israelites in the wilderness of how we will respond when the way we are used to encountering God is no longer available to us. For the Israelites Moses had been their spiritual rock, their leader, their saviour, it was Moses who had brought them up from the land of Egypt. It was Moses who had defeated Pharaoh. Moses who had led them through the wilderness. Moses who had struck water from the rock at Horeb so the people didn't die of thirst. And now he was gone from them. He'd gone up the mountain to meet with God and hadn't come back down again. And the people down below in the valley didn't know what to do next. The one who had been their priest and their prophet, the one who had represented God to them and them to God, was no longer with them. So what are they to do? Well, when I learned this story in Sunday school, I was told, I think, that the people manufactured 
an idol at this point and that the golden calf was possibly an image of Baal, the ancient Near Eastern fertility god. However, rereading this now, I'm not so sure. They definitely make a golden calf and they worship it and offer sacrifices to it. But when Aaron presents the calf to the Israelites, he introduces it not as Baal or some other god, but as the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Interestingly, something that they had previously ascribed to Moses just three verses earlier. The problem here, I think, isn't so much that they go worshipping the false gods of other nations at the first available opportunity. The problem is rather that they make a false image of their own God. The sin of Israel here isn't a departure from the worship of Yahweh. It's the manufacturing of a false representation of the Lord. And this is a far more insidious sin. And it's one that easily creeps upon us all. Now, that's not to say that we're immune from the sin of idolatry. Humans have a remarkable capacity to construct new gods after our own image and then devote our sacrifice and worship to them. From the sacrifices of money we make to the gods of free market consumerism, to the worship we give to those images of our identity that exist in our social media streams, from the sacrifices of time we offer to the gods of entertainment, to the worshipful pursuit of sex and pleasure, in so many ways we can construct other gods and worship them with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength. However, alluring those such idolatrous distractions may be, they're also fairly easy to identify. Far harder to pin down are those places where we don't so much make other gods for ourselves, as we construct false images of the God we know and love. And we are particularly prone to such acts when we, like the people of Israel in the wilderness, find ourselves cut adrift from our certainties. So the question for us here, perhaps, is how we can identify those times when our equivalent of Moses has gone up the mountain and not come back down again? What are the things, the people, that have consistently in our experience made the invisible God seem real for us? It might be a friend, a mentor, maybe a minister who's now left our lives. It might be a style of worship that barely exists anymore. Perhaps memories of a packed congregation singing the songs or hymns of our childhoods. It might be a form of prayer that used to seem so meaningful, but which has run dry in recent years. What are you missing? What do you long for? What is your Moses that has gone from you? And here's the difficult question. What have you replaced it with? Well, I'll leave that one for each of us to ponder. And we'll head back to the Bible for a minute. The story of the Israelites in the wilderness is still part of the Jewish prehistory myth. And it's one of those stories 
that evolved and was passed down from generation to generation until it got written down in the sixth century by the Jews in exile in Babylon. And this means that in order for us to read it well, we need to have an eye on those who wrote it. When we know why they shaped it the way that they did, uh, and if we can understand who its intended first readers were, we're better equipped to understand it better ourselves. So this text about Moses going up the mountain and not coming back, this story that is set in prehistorical mythology of the Israelites actually needs to be heard in the far more recent context of the Babylonian exile. And for the exiles, their answer to the question of what it was that had gone from them would have been the temple in Jerusalem. So in 587 BC, the Babylonians despoiled the temple, desecrated the Holy of Holies, and despite what Indiana Jones may believe, destroyed the Ark of the Covenant, containing the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them. Everything that had given the Israelites stability in their religious life had been taken from them by the Babylonians. And in its place, there they were in Babylon, surrounded by images of um, false Babylonian gods, wondering what their God looks like for them when everything they thought they knew about God had been taken from them. And here we find the answer to one of the more puzzling aspects of our reading this morning. Did you notice that even though there's only one golden calf, the people refer to it in the plural. Listen to verse four again. Aaron took the gold from them, formed it into a mould and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's weird, isn't it? What is going on here? Well, the answer can be found in the book of one Kings which tells the story of the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrian invaders in 722 BC, about 130 years before the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. At that time, Israel had become divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom ruled by Jeroboam and a southern kingdom based at Jerusalem ruled by Rehoboam of the house of David. And Northern Jeroboam's problem was that southern Rehoboam had possession of the temple. And so the people of the northern kingdom kept making pilgrimages south to offer sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. And his worry was that eventually the people of the northern kingdom would reject him as king and turn their allegiance to Rehoboam of Jerusalem because he had control of the temple, the center of religious worship. So now listen to a few verses from 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26 to 30. Then Jeroboam said to himself, now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David if this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. The heart of this people will turn to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah, and they will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So King Jeroboam took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. 
And this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one at Bethel and before the other as far as Dan. Well, did you spot it? The story of Moses, Aaron and the golden calf that we had read for us by Rosanna earlier, which was written down in exile in Babylon, is directly quoting from the book of 1 Kings, where it describes the sin that brought down the northern kingdom. Jeroboam's two golden calves were proclaimed as the gods who brought Israel up out of the land of Egypt as a direct challenge to the temple in Jerusalem. Scholars tell us that what's probably going on here is that the calves were intended as earthly pedestals for the heavenly Yahweh to stand on. You can find ancient Near Eastern works of art of kings riding on two bulls with their kind of feet firmly planted on each one. And I think uh, Jeroboam hoped that these would function for the northerners in a manner similar to the way in which the Ark of the Covenant in the temple was functioning in Jerusalem as a place of earthly worship for the invisible God. The, the, the two golden calves that Jeroboam constructed are not idolatrous Baal gods. They're false representations of the true God. They're an invitation to worship Yahweh in the wrong way. And uh, they're brought into being as Jeroboam's trying to break the Jerusalem temple's monopoly on Yahweh worship. So fast forward 130 years from there to the exile in Babylon. And here we've got the southerners having now lost their temple, exiled in Babylon, and they're reflecting on this story from 130 years previously to try and help them understand their own experience of losing their temple. And so they use it to frame their retelling of this story of Moses, Aaron and the people in the wilderness. The experience of Israel's wilderness wanderings becomes a key metaphor for the Jews understanding their Babylonian exile. And the story of the golden calf functions as a warning of the temptation to make false images of God and as a call to faithfulness even when God seems impossibly distant. So how might we hear this in our own times of exile? Well, the last six months have been a time of exile from many things for us, including our own church building. And for many of us, this has been deeply destabilizing to the way we normally meet God. I think the longest I've ever been between church services before 2020 was about three weeks on holiday. For most of my life, I've been to church at least twice a week. We've been exiled from our building, exiled from our worship, from our community, from our work of social justice, from our singing, from our pipe organ. And I wonder how we will hear the story of Moses, Aaron and the golden calf. What temptations have we faced to construct false images of the true God? What golden calves have we made? What have we tried to put in place of that which has been taken from us? Again, I'm not offering the answers here. I am just asking these questions. But I do have some wonderings that might spark our thinking. I wonder if sometimes we make golden calves from our memories, worshipping that which used to be and devoting ourselves to the task of bringing it back into being. 
It's great that some of us, at least, will be in our building on Shaftesbury Avenue next Sunday morning. But it won't be a return to the temple in Jerusalem. I also wonder if we might ponder the experience of the early Christians in the time after Jesus was taken from them. For them, their prophet and priest had gone from their sight. They no longer had direct access to the one who represented God to them and them to God. And they too had to work out how to relate to God without a person or an image as an intermediary. God may have been fully present and revealed in Jesus, but once Jesus was no longer there, what were they to do? And the answer, of course, was that they had to discover that God was with them in a new and different way. Not in the worship of the rebuilt temple, nor in the person of Jesus, nor even in the faithful remembrance of Jesus' words and commands. That way you just end up worshipping the Bible. What the early Christians had to discover was that Jesus is God with them through the Holy Spirit. And as we have been exiled from our certainties and are looking to an uncertain future, maybe we too need to discover that God is known to us not primarily through our memories, nor through our place of worship, nor even through our holy texts, but through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, drawing us to new acts of faithful worship in the true God and challenging all our attempts and temptations to make false representations of the true God. So let us turn our eyes away from them and towards the Holy Spirit of God, who is at work in our lives today, drawing us near to the eternal and invisible God. Amen. So now I will invite the panellists to um, unmute their microphones and their videos and we can we can start our discussion on the words that um that Simon brought to us and and Rosanna the words that that you spoke from the bible to us so was there anything in um either in the bible reading or in Simon's sermonette that really jumped out to anyone that they would want to discuss and I will also be um sharing comments from our chat on Zoom. Uh, so yeah, please, please feel free to start off any discussions. I think, I think a lot of people have been feeling that kind of vulnerability. So I think if you've been, ex if, you, if you've left where you, what was comfortable and where you've known and you're out in the desert or stuck in your house and not able to have what's been familiar and you're feeling lost and afraid. I think it's, it's quite normal to go for that nostalgic view of what you had before and, and to be quite easily distracted from, from having the focus that, that you, you have when you've, when you've been in, in a, um, a more normal situation and so I, I sort of feel quite a lot of sympathy for these people um, because it is very disconcerting and I think there's it's, it's one thing to know that in an ideal world you will reach out and ask for help and talk to each other and read and focus and pray and actually doing it 
and making sure that you're not being distracted by other things and that you're turning your eyes back to God can be really quite challenging. Um, but I think that's, I suppose, the benefits of a community being able to continue in a way like this and hopefully next week being able to get back together to actually give each other that support. Yeah, I think, I think we're very lucky, haven't we? that you know even for those people who don't have access to a computer they are still able to ring into Bloomsbury and still be be a part of our services um but yeah thank you Rosanna for for that um does anyone have anything they'd like to add to what what Rosanna said or anything anything new that they'd like to add to the discussion I think what I sort of feel is that um yeah I I, I agree with Rosanna that it's easy to Sort of maybe look at the, the children of Israel and say, oh, you know, yeah, right, they, they did the, you know, the wrong thing, whatever. But actually, this is absolutely the way that we are. And, um, and I'm not necessarily certain that it's a bad, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's the way we function. And, and when circumstances change, as they always do, you know, what do we do? Um, where, where, where do we go? Um, and I think what's quite interesting to me is how often over the past weeks, as we've looked at various things of scripture, that this sort of thing comes up a lot, I think, of this idea of this sort of disorientation, um, if you like, from, you know, with Job, you could say that, you know, disruption came in a terrible way for him. You know, it's, it, but these things are, okay, that was extreme for him, but for all of us, you know, things come along like this. In, and for many people in the world, this is the norm, you know. So the, the way we react, we need to be compassionate with ourselves and I think with others very often in the way that we respond to things, um, rather than maybe feeling that we're, you know, always condemning ourselves, but, um, you know, to, to in a sense stay with these things um, when we're uncertain and, and to, to stay with that uncertainty, to stay with not knowing things. I think that's a, a much better place to be if we could be there, staying in the uncomfortable. And I think that's what, for me, is very often what God is doing, is taking us out of the place of comfort. Um, and it's not where we want to be, it's not where I want to be, but actually it's often the place that he wants us to be, <laughs> or she wants us to be, you know, because I think that's where we grow. And so maybe that's something that we can stay with, rather than maybe, in a sense, always trying to see a way out of our predicaments of, of uncomfortableness but to say look what can I learn in this situation that will then move me on rather than this idea of that we all want to hold on to the things that have been taken away um, so maybe that's that's a thought yeah thank thank you and I think I think that's really interesting that hmm. and I like Simon was saying I think 2020 has taught us that there is a lot of uncertainty and now the entire world is uncertain and I think that our ability to sit with that and sit with with God in that um, is an incredibly powerful thing for us to hold on to and I'm just going to mention um, so Jeff in the comments has said the thing is we always build an image of quote the depth and ground of our being and that's Paul Tillich it is when we make that image concrete and fixed that we abandon the aspect that the image must call us forward. The image is a developing image. Keeping that image as for the common good rather than for my selfish good is part of the challenge. 
That is why church and the debates and disagreements are important. Inspiration always feels as if it comes to us from something external, but sometimes it comes from the image we have built talking back to us. Evaluating whether we have built an idol or a true image is the role of what has been called the Holy Spirit. Um, and Jeff also said that he knows a few Christians who make an idol of the Bible. Um, so is there any, any other of our panellists who want to add to Jeff's comments or um, add anything kind of in, in addition to that? Yes, just want to add an, a, a little reflection. As I was listening to Simon and I uh, was very touched in, in absence of real normal things uh, like what we uh, experienced during the the height of the pandemic and uh, seeing that, you know, people losing loved ones um, near and far and they cannot be comforted and, and you know, situation as work or friendship or, you know, other situations, you, you, you know, that you, that you can't normalize anymore. And what do you do uh, as a person of faith? You know, what, what can you cling onto? And it is very easy for uh, for you to idolize something other than God, and you know. So it's, it's very moving that uh, as as a person of faith, you 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 keep your faith and cling on to God, believing that you know in the fact that I I can't say farewell to my loved ones, the fact that I can see my friends, you know. But I, I still believe that that you know I will get through this. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Solomon. Thank you. Um, and I think that, that that is true. You know that we that we that we are aware of our loved ones around us, and that we we acknowledge that we can still cling, you know, cling to God and come to God. Um, in the comments, um, Peter Bonascori Howe has said an alternative view of viewing the Bible is to consider it to be the rule book which is not the same as, quote, making an idol of it, but simply as looking at it as the instruction book. The Aylway book is partly set in stone and partly a guide to be used and modified as emergency situations require. The railway rule book, sorry. Um, so, na um, sorry, Philip, did you, have, uh, did you have anything to say? Do you oh, have very quick um, observation. Um <clears throat> Roseanne uh, mentioned the word nostalgia, and I think this is quite a kernel word in um, what Simon was saying as well, especially when he referred, I think at the very end of his sermon, to new acts of faithful worship, which I think is, is obviously essential in all this. But nostalgia, hmm, well, I think we all need to analyze ourselves a little bit around that word, especially those of us of a slightly older generation, perhaps, uh, realizing that nostalgia can be something very wholesome and healthy and nourishing and fortifying often. But there's a danger with it as well that <clears throat> it may not nourish the present. It can be destructive, um, suffocating, and it can be you know, a negation of lots of things that we want to do moving forward. Um, because the church is always supposed to be reforming and renewing. And um, to come back to Simon's words again, um, I think we must all be prepared and to accept new acts of faithful worship. 
Thank you. Thank you, Philip. And, and on that note of faithful worship, let us move on. And now we have our prayers of intercession led by Philip. Thank you, Philip. Well, while we are in the grips of this global pandemic, let us think of all of those who are involved in the, whole, in the health situation. Let us remember the doctors, the nurses and care workers of every possible description, many working selflessly, providing a calendar of care 24 hours a day. Let us pray for those who feel overwhelmed by the present lockdown, the sick in mind and body, many of these known to us, for the lonely, the isolated, and for those who feel trapped in a daily routine of helplessness. Lord, hear our prayer. Let us think too of others experiencing the traumas of these times. Those recently made redundant, the unemployed, the millions in education caught up in the present turmoil and upheaval, who are experiencing very deeply that great unknown. And a verse from our hymn book. In the streets of every city where the bruised and lonely dwell, let us show the Saviour's pity, let us of his mercy tell. Lord, humble us and equip us for this task, and for a hurting and suffering world, hear our prayer. It has been wonderful to hear prayers and to be made aware of the whole prison situation this morning. Yesterday was World Mental Health Day, and I know that a lot of my Facebook friends were posting information about this. And one prayer that came up several times was this one. Loving God, be with all who struggle with their mental health and all who support them. Give each of us faith to see beyond the troubles of this time, fresh hope to face this day and every day, and a true sense of love for all your people revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord of compassion and healing, hear our prayer. And now a seasonal prayer. O loving God, whose farm is all creation, at the seasonal time of year, we would normally be singing joyful songs and hymns of ploughing, sowing, reaping. And let us give thanks for those labourers in this field, providing all good gifts around us. But in acknowledging our bounty, let us not forget that multitude who have little, and for those whose lives, sadly, are in a perpetual famine. But let us express our gratitude and thankfulness to God, again through that harvest hymn. We thank you then, our Father, for all things bright and good, the seed time and the harvest, our life, our health, our food. And finally, two verses of scripture to give us consolation 
in these dark times. A verse from Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And a verse from Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Great Lord of nature, shaping and renewing, be pleased to hear these our prayers. Amen. God, as loving mother and father of us all, Jesus, our sibling, spirit of inclusive love, we welcome you to walk with us for the rest of this week and into the coming months as we lead into the winter and Advent period. May your love, above all else, bring us peace, solace and safety when we most need it. May we know your presence, Lord, that, above all else, and irrespective of our circumstances, you are there for us and with us. And if you are with us, Lord, who then can be against us? In the name of God, our parent, Jesus, our sibling, and the spirit of inclusive love. Amen. <laughs>